Hello and welcome to this edition of At The Crossroads with myself, Paddy Cummins. This episode was titled An Introduction to Bluegrass Part 1 and will feature a range of music that was popular prior to the formation of the Bluegrass Boys in and around 1940. And then we'll move on to the big tree of Bluegrass Music's genesis. That's Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys, Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs and the Foggy Mountain Boys and the Stanley Brothers and the Clinch Mountain Boys. In retrospect, it's undisputed that bluegrass officially came to be with the formation of Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys and the period that started with the lineup of 1945. The 10-year period prior to this saw the groundwork laid by Bill Monroe in a variety of other combinations, most famously with his brothers Charlie and Birch. It gives an indication into the influences that Monroe took into his newly formed band and also lets us look into exactly how it differed so significantly from the old-time country music or hillbilly music of the day. We'll also look at developments which happened in bluegrass itself in the first 10 years up to about the mid-1950s. But first, let's hark back a little bit before getting right into the thick of bluegrass. Starting off the show today with some banjo music from the pre-bluegrass era and I find it a sensible place to start for a number of reasons. Firstly, bluegrass had to come from somewhere and indeed it took influences from a lot of places. There are a few classic elements, although Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys is often cited and justifiably as the beginnings of the genre. It wasn't as simple as a random eureka moment in musical history. It took several years of experimentation before Monroe would eventually acquire the sound he wanted. One of those elements was the classic banjo style of Earl Scruggs. But on listening to our opening montage of tunes from one Snuffy Jenkins, himself from an area close to where Scruggs grew up in North Carolina, you can observe that the young Scruggs didn't exactly lick it off a stone. Although Scruggs didn't learn directly from Jenkins, both players have cited two other banjo players from the Carolinas, Smith Hammett and Rex Brooks, as developers of the three-finger style which is almost exclusively attributed to Scruggs. Unfortunately, not much information remains on Hammett or Brooks, but I guess you can take their word for it. Don Reno, who was supposed to join Monroe's first Bluegrass Boys lineup until he joined the army, also praised the style of Jenkins and regarded him as a big influence on his banjo style. Jenkins played in several groups of what was then often termed old-time string band music. And that was a music that was popular during the 1920s and 1930s and had an influence on how Bill Monroe approached his formation of a bluegrass band in the 1940s. The state of Georgia had a strong tradition of string band music and string band-esque musicians such as Fiddlin' John Carson, Clayton McMicken, Jid Tanner and Riley Puckett. Although the lineup was broad and changed over the years, Georgia was the birthplace of the group Jid Tanner and his skillet lickers. They recorded instrumentals and songs in the string band style and here's an example from a 78 RPM disc that they recorded. It's a song called Dixie. Look away, 
you had Jid Tanner and his skillet liquors and the tune Dixie. Now Bill Monroe who was born in the state of Kentucky had cited that Jid Tanner and his skillet liquors and in particular the fiddle player Clayton McMitchin were an influence on how bluegrass music developed. Along with his brothers Charlie and Birch the Monroe brothers became a popular act for live dances and radio in the early 1930s before releasing several 78 RPM discs throughout most of the decade. Although still a primitive version of what bluegrass would eventually encompass, the groundwork was still noticeable in those recordings. For example, Bill's distinctive high lonesome tenor, his blistering mandolin solos and the relatively quick tempos of many songs would remain staples of the later style. After disagreements saw Bill and Charlie part ways in 1938, the hunt was on to find a new project. But first, let's have a listen to a recording from 1936, a version of a song that the Carter family recorded called Foggy Mountaintop from the Munro Brothers. Foggy Mountaintop from the Monroe Brothers. That's an example of a direct link to the Scots and Irish tradition of songs and the Appalachian mountain tradition that was directly absorbed into contemporary country or hillbilly music of the time. Gospel hymnals were also massive in popularity, as well as comic songs and ones that linked back instead of to the Appalachian mountain tradition of the Scots-Irish, but to the African-American blues songs of slaves and prisoners. Even though Bill would go on to massive success throughout the 1940s and 1950s, Charlie continued to make records with a newly formed group called the Kentucky Pardoners. In their initial years, the music was more reminiscent of early country and old-time music as this 1944 radio recording of Under the Old Hickory Tree will attest to. However, later recordings of the band would display a significant change in style to fall in line with the new bluegrass sound created by his brother. There's a dear old hickory tree always in my memory You will find it in the mountain on the hill 
Was beneath a hickory tree Where I courted Rose of Lee And it seems that I can hear her whisper still When the sun sinks in the west And the moon shines in the blue And the mud and gales are calling merrily It is in you'll find me waiting With the love for only you It's the shadow underneath that hickory the old hickory tree from a 1944 recording of the Kentucky Pardoners led by Charlie Munro and interestingly enough featuring a certain Lester Flat on the mandolin. A very early radio appearance on the Grand Ole Opry by Bill Munro and his band in around 1939 or 1940 displays what would come to set the standard for what bluegrass music would be for many decades after, indeed right up to today. Although Bill Munro was most famous for his mandolin playing, here we heard him on the guitar singing a song that would become a standard of the bluegrass repertoire, the Mule Skinner Blues. The lineup on this show featured Art Wooten on fiddle, Cleo Davis, who would usually play guitar but in this case was playing mandolin as he'd switched instruments with Monroe, and on bass was Amos Green. When the Bluegrass Boys were formed by Bill Monroe, they instantly became a popular feature on radio throughout the southern states. Pre-1946, their style was still very string band based and many elements were borrowed from his duets with Charlie and other string bands of the time. At the end of 1945, this would change with the addition of Earl Scruggs on banjo, but until this point there was still plenty to rave about. Monroe employed a primitive style banjo player named David Aikman, aka Stringbean, whose lack of virtuosic skills on the instrument were made up for by his role as a comedian. Bill utilised a fiddle, guitar and, for a short period, an accordion player named Sally Ann Forrester. Their hard-driving flavour of old-time country music that preferred blistering licks and solos in place of the more traditional melodic lines and relaxed tempos was a totally new sound for people to soak up. It still had rural roots and, aside from Monroe's own prolific song and instrumental compositions, much of the repertoire also featured old gospel hymnals and traditional fiddle tunes. There was a down-home feel to the music which was very much interlinked to the social fabric of rural southeastern America and often included subject matter such as love, heartbreak, religion, respect for one's parents and the positive accolades in doing a day's honest work on the farm. Here's that track from around 1939-1940 from the Grand Old Opry radio show, Bill Monroe with his band and the Mule Skinner Blues. And now we introduce our guest act for this evening on the Grand Old Opry. Bill Monroe and his bluegrass boys from up in dear old Kentucky. And the number's a hot one, the Mule Skinner Blues. Let her go, Bill. Good morning, Captain. Good morning, Line. 
I can pop my initial on a millennial had the Mule Skinner Blues from Bill Monroe and his Bluegrass Boys on an early appearance on the Grand Ole Opry. Now I mentioned Cleo Davis as the guitar player on that particular appearance, although on that particular clip they swapped instruments and Bill Monroe played guitar. But his main guitarist in the early 40s was country legend, who would later go on to have a solo career. Uh, His name was Clyde Moody. He did a stint with Bill Monroe in the early days joining in 1940 and staying until 1944. His mellow vocal tone, coupled with his distinct guitar style, made a wonderful blend with Munro's higher tenor. In the 1950s, when Charlie Klein was hired to play with the band, one of the reasons was because he played in the style of Clyde Moody, and Lester Flatt certainly adapted certain tricks from Clyde Moody as well. Here's an example of Clyde singing with the Bluegrass Boys on one of his best-known pieces, Six white horses. I'm leaving you to wear you off my mind A lot of leaving you to wear you off my mind Thought you keep me very troubled, troubled all the time. Are the six white horses going to buy two? Are the six white horses going to buy two? That some other woman has took my love from you. Oh, the train I'm riding is 16 coaches long Oh, the train I'm riding is 16 coaches long That woman I'm loving, she's got another man and gone If you don't believe I'm leaving, just count the days I'm gone. 
If you don't believe I'm leaving, just count the days I'm gone. Next time you see your daddy, it'll be on Judgment Ah, tell me, pretty mama, which way the river runs? Ah, tell me, pretty mama, which way the river runs? Run straight from my back door to the set of the rising sun. I'm going to play another example of a track from the period just prior to Scruggs signing in late 1945, featuring many of Monroe's famed bluesy mandolin rudiments. On this particular track, called the Rocky Road Blues from 1945, String Bean is playing bass. You'll hear Sally Ann Forster's accordion, and featured on fiddle is one of Monroe's early mainstays, Chubby Wise. The rhythm here has a certain almost like a western swing flavour and goes to show that while it's starting to have more elements of what would be called bluegrass there was still a lot of experimentation going on and it would be another few months before the style itself became solidified. i 
promised me love that was true. And I'm sorry to say that I believed in you. For it's all turned out just like a dream. Let me sad in the world it True Life Blues and before that Rocky Road Blues both from 1945 and from Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys. The latter clip then featuring David Aikman or String Bean on banjo and on bass was Cedric Rainwater as he became known. Now you may be asking well okay (laughs) Paddy you've played an awful lot of Bill Monroe and uh, we're you know a half an hour into the show what's the story with that? Well for those of you that aren't that familiar with the bluegrass genre it's really quite incredible not just how much of an influence that bill monroe as just the man and the band had on what was to be bluegrass music i think it's also very important to see not only what music went before bill monroe played but how exactly the style of his music developed over the course of about 10 years before it eventually settled into becoming what it was, i.e. bluegrass. Before that seminal lineup of December 1945 and into early 1946, uh, you can see Monroe was doing the rounds with his band and still fine-tuning his sound. He was still very much finding it difficult to break away from what was more or less mainstream country music, and it would take until the end of World War II and a little bit after that before he would eventually get that sound that he was looking for. And so, it was then, as 1945 drew to a close, Monroe hired banjo player Earl Scruggs and guitarist Lester Flatt to take his band into their next and probably most important phase. The big difference now was Flatt's rhythm guitar playing, much influenced from the previous guitar player Clyde Moody, which gave bluegrass its distinctive timing. And Scruggs' banjo style, with its fluid, cascading, rolling sound, was clean and functioned as a major driving force in the group. Whereas before, with string bean, it was a rhythmic instrument that took a kind of primitive solo work. Now it was at the forefront and was a driving instrument, driving the rhythm, but also taking blisteringly impressive solos, such was Scruggs' own ability on the instrument. Around this time, Monroe also acquired his famous Lloyd Lore Gibson F5 mandolin, and now the scene was set for a new style of music to emerge. From perhaps the earliest recorded example of Scruggs playing with Monroe's band, here's a clip from March 1946, after they appeared on WSM's Grand Ole Opry playing the traditional song, Little Maggie.
you have it you can immediately hear the effect of the banjo of Earl Scruggs when that was added to the lineup in late 1945 and this sound would be the focus of Monroe's attention for the rest of his career for two years Lester and Earl toured with Monroe and were the only bluegrass band for most of that time now we'll come back to Monroe and how his band developed and how bluegrass developed over the next 10 years or so but it's about time we take a deviation from Bill Munro for a minute and mention that in 1948, after differences came to the fore between them, Flat and Scruggs left Munro's band and they set up their own group called the Foggy Mountain Boys. And that featured Paul Warren on fiddle, Josh Graves on dobro, which was a new instrument to be added into the lineup of what was bluegrass music and something that set them apart from Bill Munro's band. Jake Tullock was the bass player and Curly Seckler played mandolin and uh, they became a sensation in the newly formed country music world bluegrass as a genre name was still yet to earn its title by the way and uh, their popularity was thanks in no small part to scruggs banjo style they had a residency on the grand Ole opry which was famously sponsored by martha white's baking products and recordings of their music was featured in tv shows and films like the beverly hillbillies and bonnie and clyde One of their earliest recordings was the banjo instrumental Foggy Mountain Breakdown from 1949. It was, in fact, similarly modelled on a Bill Munro breakdown, which was titled Bluegrass Breakdown, with one significant chord change. Here's the original recording.
Foggy Mountain Breakdown there from Earl Scruggs and Lester Flat and the Foggy Mountain Boys. Now, of course, this style had been developed out of the fact that both of the prime members of the group, Flat and Scruggs, were members of Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys just prior to setting up their own band. So naturally, there's going to be similarities in style. The banjo as the forefront and really because of Earl Scruggs' incredible technique on the instrument, really set them apart in that way. Bill Monroe was, well, all about Bill Monroe, and the mandolin took a much more central role. Curly Seckler's mandolin playing, while definitely utilised, especially as a rhythmic chop on the offbeat and stuff like that, uh, wasn't really ever at the forefront. And also, as I mentioned earlier, Josh Graves was the first dobro player to really uh, meld the instrument into a bluegrass context. So even though on the face of it and in certain circumstances it can seem that they weren't doing that much different, in the context of the nitty gritty of the music and even just the instrumentation, there was quite a lot of different stuff going on. If there was a big three of bluegrass music's genesis, the final piece of the puzzle would be the Stanley Brothers and the Clinch Mountain Boys. Fronted by brothers Carter and Ralph Stanley, respectively playing guitar and banjo, they formed in 1946 and cited, amongst many others, the music of the Monroe Brothers as influences on their own. Since bluegrass music is very much rooted in the traditional music of the Appalachian Mountains and, to a certain extent, the blues music of African-American slaves, Monroe's claim on the style of the music wasn't always greeted with open arms. The Stanleys would regularly claim that the music they played was hillbilly or old-time country music and basically suggested that it had been as old as the hills. Monroe, in a sort of a way, took them as a threat to his musical vision and for many years, in fact, there was a difficult coexistence between them. But once those differences of opinion were put aside, the two groups cooperated to the extent that while on a hiatus from the Clinch Mountain Boys, Carter Stanley himself did a stint with the Bluegrass Boys. Here's a clip from an early Stanley 78 record called Mother No Longer Awaits Me at Home. After that, I'm going to do, I'm going to play a, a version, their version of Little Maggie. And when that comes up, note that it's, it's interesting to compare the more laid back approach that they have in contrast to Bill Monroe's livelier uh, approach to the song. And uh, the fiddle player on that version of Little Maggie, I assume, is Leslie Keat. Thank you. 
yonder stands little Maggie with a dram brass in her hand. She's drinking away her trouble and according to mother man. Oh, how can I ever stand it to see them two blue eyes oh, shining in the moonlight like two diamonds in the sky? Flowers were made for blooming, pretty stars were made to shine, pretty women were made for loving, little Maggie was made for mine. Last time I saw my little Maggie, she was sitting on the banks of the sea, with a forty-four around her, and a banjo on her knee. Going down to the station with my suitcase in my hand. I'm a going to leave this country. I'm a going to some foreign distant land. Go away, go away, little Maggie. Go and do the best you can. I'll give me another woman. You can get you another man. The Stanley Brothers there with uh, a lovely version of Little Maggie. Lead singer Carter Stanley died sadly in the 1960s after struggling with alcoholism at the young age of only 41. But his brother Ralph continued to lead the band for many decades afterwards, where they then called themselves Ralph Stanley and the Clinch Mountain Boys. And famously it was Ralph who sung on the soundtrack to the film Oh Brother Where Art Thou on songs such as Oh Death and Man of Constant Sorrow, which brought bluegrass relatively close to the mainstream audience again. Now, even though Bill Monroe started the trend which other bands were beginning to pick up on, he wasn't outdone by his successors in the genre and kept a stellar lineup of musicians. Mac Wiseman, after initially teaming up with Flat and Scruggs, did a brief stint with Monroe and recorded a few sides. During this time, Rudy Lyle played banjo, having joined the same year as Wiseman, and Chubby Wise played fiddle until apparently through 1949 and was then replaced by Charlie Klein, who incidentally, his brother Curly Ray Klein, played fiddle with Stanley's and the Clinch Mountain Boys. This track next that I featured is uh, Mac Wiseman on lead vocals and was recorded in 1949 and is titled Can't You Hear Me Calling, now a bluegrass standard. Mac would have a fruitful solo career and was the last of the first generation bluegrass musicians to survive when he passed away in February 2019, aged 93. The days are long, the nights are lonely Since you've left me all alone I loved you so, my little darling I've worried so, since you've been gone Sweetheart of mine, can't you hear me calling? Me, 
remember now the night we parted. A big mistake has caused it all. If you'll return, sunshine will fall. To stay away would be my fault. Sweetheart of mine, can you hear me calling? Dark, my little darling Oh, how I need your sweet embrace When I awoke, the sun was shining When I looked up, I saw your face Sweetheart of mine, can't you hear me calling? Wiseman there leading the song Can't You Hear Me Calling with Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys. Arguably, Jimmy Martin was the last first-generation bluegrass singer to do a stint with Bill Monroe. He joined in 1949 to replace the departing Wiseman, aided by the good wingmanship of their banjo player Rudy Loyal. Along with Charlie Klein, this lineup was another classic one for the Bluegrass Boys and ushered in a new style for the band. Jimmy's exuberant and high vocal range saw many songs modulate in key towards B major for the first time. And today the key of B is a seminal one in the Bluegrass circles and many would look to Jimmy Martin as the beginning of this trend. His domineering voice went in tandem with a strong personality and in 1953 he left the Bluegrass Boys for greener pastures. In 1954 he had initially joined the Osborne Brothers but only recorded one session with them before forming his own band the Sunny Mountain Boys the following year and hiring amongst others J.D. Crow as banjo player. In Jimmy's early days with Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys, Bill recorded the vast majority of lead vocals, but Jimmy sang regularly in duet and has a number of lead vocal tracks like this one, Poison Love, taken from a session in the early 1950s and featuring Rudy Lyle on banjo. I couldn't determine whether the fiddle player was Red Taylor or a young Vassar Clements, but I'll leave that trivia to the experts.
you alone, my darling And makes me never, ever let you go But my pleading have all been in vain For you and you alone, dear And my better judgments tell me to say no For your pardon, love, as Poison Love there with Jimmy Martin on lead vocals and uh, playing with Bill Munro. Uh, about 150 musicians passed through Bill Munro's band throughout its existence until his death in 1996. And it became somewhat of an institution for successive generations of budding bluegrass musicians looking to cut their teeth in the genre. Munro's biggest mainstay, longest mainstay, was the fiddle player Kenny Baker, who, much like Earl Scruggs and Bill Munro himself, devised a new style which to fit his instrument to the music. Baker's fiddle playing was based on his experience in western swing and his love of gypsy jazz. And this smoother, flowier style of fiddle playing deviated considerably from the old-time based style that had been the focus of many fiddle players up to that point, like Charlie and Curly Ray Klein, Paul Warren or Chubby Wise. Kenny Baker joined in 1957, but the two clips I'm going to present to you are from 1963, and I feel they're a sensible point to close the episode. You see, by this point, amongst those second-generation musicians who played with the Bluegrass Boys uh, were Sonny Osborne, Vassar Clements, Don Stover, and in the next selection of clips, you'll hear two more promising young guns display their prowess, Del McCurry and Brad Keith. Of course, Brad Keith was Bill Monroe's name for Bill Keith, who was the man responsible for uh, adapting a different technique for Scruggs's three-finger method of banjo playing, the Bill Keith style or melodic style of banjo playing. And bluegrass would develop considerably through the 1960s and take influences from other genres and musicians such as Clarence White of the Birds fame. Many musicians who went on their own way in the 1950s like Jimmy Martin and Mac Wiseman and the Osborne Brothers, not to mention those who never did time with Monroe in the first place, were bringing bluegrass to a point where getting hired by Bill Monroe was far from the only opportunity available to get involved in the music professionally. Stage one was well completed and stage two was about to explode with all kinds of possibilities. Once the 1950s were in motion, traditional bluegrass expanded quite happily for most of the decade and found fans not just in the rural south but in east coast cities. The initial wonder of bluegrass would be overshadowed by mainstream country music and rock and roll by the end of the decade and into the 1960s by different forms of electric rock and contemporary music, but not all was lost. Bluegrass adapted through the end of the 1960s and into the 70s, and while remaining more of a special interest genre than one that would remain in the spotlight, many groups sought to explore new technical heights and genre fusions. Musicians like David Grisman, Tony Rice, Sam Bush, Jerry Douglas, Bela Fleck, bands like Olden in the Way, the Tony Rice Unit, Newgrass Revival, even the Grateful Dead, they all took something from traditional bluegrass. I hope this episode has been enjoyable, if not informative, for you today. And if you've any feedback, suggestions or queries, as always, email me, patrickcumminsmusic at gmail.com. More importantly, if you think that your people are going to enjoy listening to this podcast, then please spread the word. I've said it before, and I will say it again. I don't use social media, so my reach is very limited, and I basically depend on word of mouth i don't have patreon and i'm not looking for any money if you want to show your appreciation for what i do if you are enjoying it then simply tell other people to tune in i really really appreciate the listenership i do love doing this and i'll continue to do it anyway but all the better if other people are getting enjoyment out of it it's always available on spotify or acast so i'm going to leave you with that aforementioned lineup of bluegrass boys first up del mccurry's going to take the lead on I wonder where you are tonight. And then Bill Keat takes us home with an instrumental, The Devil's Dream, all featuring that wonderful innovator, Kenny Baker on fiddle. So from me, Paddy Cummins, look after yourselves, and I'll see you soon at the crossroads. Tonight 
sad, my heart is weary. Wondering if I'm wrong or right. I think about you, though you left me. Thank you, Dale, and thank you, friends, for the nice hand. It's banjo-picking time now. We're going to call on Brad Keith, a boy from Boston, Massachusetts, and he's doing a mighty fine old-timer entitled The Devil's Dream. ¶¶ 